Nancy Pelosi, you can pay me and I'll make sure you don't make these mistakes because this is pretty stupid. Fire the intern. (laughs) Yeah, fire fire the intern. Exactly. to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting on the Big Talker 106.7 FM every Saturday at 10 a.m. I am one half of your host, Yael Lasoski, broadcasting to you from the suburbs of Charlotte, North Carolina. It's great to be back, and I'm joined, as always, on the microphone by my colleague, David Clement, up there in Toronto. David, how goes it? It is going well. It is going well. How is... The homeland treating you. What the was homeland. what was it like to come home? Yeah, that's a good question. It was uh, it was definitely an adventure. So uh, some of you may know that we took the uh, transatlantic flight, and uh, according to the rules, uh, due to the Carol Baskins virus, you're only allowed to uh, appear at 13 airports throughout the country. So we landed in D.C. And, uh, you know, a lot of the work was done before we landed. So it was checking our documents, making sure that uh, we had a marriage certificate. And then once we arrive, um, everyone's wearing masks, no doubt. And then you have CDC nurses uh, that are sitting there at the very front, and they've got their temperature gauges and their little formula, and uh, they check the temps. And then you go up to the uh, Customs and Border Patrol agents. And, you know, there's a little bit more questions than usual, but uh, mostly, you know, where we're going, how long we're staying, this kind of stuff. wasn't too bad, but uh, finally we got out into the open, uh, rented a car, and then hit North Carolina once more. Feels good. Beautiful. Beautiful. And you know who else recently came to North Carolina? Oh, tell me. President Donald J. Trump was in Wilmington. Oh, yes. Donald Trump was right in Wilmington, North Carolina. So where this program is broadcast from on the radio, he was uh, hanging out in front of that battleship. Uh, It's a pretty short speech. I think it was only about 15, 20 minutes. And uh, he labeled Wilmington a World War II heritage city, which I guess is now going to be something that a moniker given to multiple cities that had industry or something during the war. I I don't know. I didn't see any of these plans. Yeah, I'm not I'm not well versed on what that actually means. I don't know if it's just merely symbolic or if it actually like recognizes specific contributions from the community. Um, But uh, it was interesting to see the excitement of a presidential visit. I followed some of that on Twitter. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a good amount. And, and yeah. a lot of uh, prepping up around the station here on the Big Talker. Uh, you know, I think uh, when I was living in Florida, I remember some years ago during the election 2012, uh, you know, where I was living outside of Tampa, you know, Romney or Obama, they were in town per- basically every other week. So it's a, it's a good perk of uh, the swing states that you get to... Uh, at least have some of these events or maybe question some of these people. I mean, not recently with all the pandemic stuff, but uh, interesting to be in, in the in the swing state. I think there's there's a lot of stuff that most other parts of the country don't get to see uh, because, you know, there's not much money that's being spent in, I don't know, Montana or California or something like this, where uh, normally these places are going to vote a certain way and there's no need for the opposition candidate to, to spend any money because it's basically a loss. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's all of these swing states know what it's like to be from Iowa, <laughs> which yeah. is oh which yeah, is I about forgot a, all about Iowa. No one cares about Iowa anymore, right now, right? 
Yeah, no, no. Now that the primaries are done, people largely forget about Iowa. But for those few months, Iowa is particularly important and all the candidates are there. Well, we uh, care about this, Iowa. We care about corn. Um, so we, we do. We've got, uh, we, we do have some, some Greek programming here on our program. We're going to have an interview with the freelance journalist Alex Norcia, formerly of Vice News. Uh, he is uh, someone who's written a lot of great articles that intersect with our space and consumer choice. Uh, so we've got interview plugged up with him. Uh, he's phoning in from Arizona, uh, which is great to have some West Coast uh, representation a little bit. And uh, I think a, a pretty good freewheeling conversation, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, super interesting guy. Does a lot of great research. Certainly um, helped me better understand some of the things that are going on. So I won't give uh, too much more of a primer. Um, but what I will do is have uh, Jamie roll that interview. So Jamie, play that clip. Welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio. We are joined this hour by Alex Norcia. Alex is a freelance journalist, formerly at Vice, where he covered drug policy, tobacco harm reduction, labor, and many other issues. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the program. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. And uh, you can follow Alex's work on Twitter at Alex underscore Norcia. We'll obviously uh, put that into the description. Uh, so Alex, we wanted to get you on because you're someone who uh, writes a good amount of articles, you know, across the space. But, uh, you know, first, let's let's check in with you. How are you dealing uh, with the pandemic? Where are you? How are you dealing with uh, everything that's being thrown at us uh, each and um, every day? I mean, I, I'm generally, I, I mean, I'm healthy and fine. I'm currently in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm actually sitting outside. Um, it's about 10 o'clock here, 100 degrees. Um, I've been out here since May, uh, no, June. June. I came out here in June in part because I thought it was going to get worse out here and I would be able to report on things. Um, and in part, I didn't want to be in New York anymore because I'd been laid off in May. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of here indefinitely. I might go back in October or I might just kind of stick around. Um, but yeah, I, have, I have one uh, New York question real quick because there was a, an yeah, article that, that went around by uh, James Altucher um, claiming that New York City is dead. And uh, there's oh, yeah. a lot I mean, of there's people, consternation about this. What do you think? I almost just cursed. I mean, I think, I think uh, people just love writing those articles. I think that's all it really is. I mean, it might be dead for some people. I mean, I even read that the New York Times just did an article about like, um, you know, people flocking to the suburbs, but they're all like, you know, all people who would have gone to the suburbs anyway, you know, lawyers or... Yeah, um, it accelerated their timeline and maybe yeah, pushed them I up five that, years. Yeah, that's Scott Galloway. I don't know if you guys know who that guy is. He's a professor at NYU, but I mean, he said something like, I think he was talking specifically about higher education, but his whole argument is that this pandemic really changed nothing, just accelerated everything. So, I mean, I think that's true too, right? It's not... I do worry about New York that every place that closed da closes down like a, a bar I liked and then, you know, was mourned on Twitter for a day or a restaurant is going to be replaced by like, you know, Applebee's. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you hating on Applebee's? No, okay. yeah. I mean, Applebee's is fine. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm joking. I'm just, I'm just teasing you. No, I mean, that's a, that's a good, that's a good, uh, a good kind of segue here on New York specifically. Cause I think de Blasio said he's not doing indoor dining until, 
like November. Yeah, you know, I, I, I like, I was like, I was keeping track of more of these things when I was around there. And then, because here, here, I'm in, I'm in Arizona now, and I mean, I'm, I'm obviously more attuned to what's happening here. But like, Doug Ducey, just in some, the governor, just in some capacity, opened up indoor dining. I don't know if it's like 25%. I mean, I'm not going to do it, so I don't really care. But yeah. um, it's, they're reopening things here. Um, which seemed to happen at a much faster pace because it was kind of scary when I arrived here. But New York's been in this sort of slow um, crawl. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I still don't know about schools, really. That's confusing because that changes every other day. I think he just reopened gyms or they're going to open soon, too. Um, yeah, it might yeah, be one of those things where he may or may not reopen gyms, but he's still going to go to one. Right. He loves going to the YMCA. Isn't that where he goes? He the YMCA. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's kind of like Nancy Pelosi going, getting caught going to, uh, to that hair salon for a hairdo yeah. and then, yeah. and then saying that the, the shop owner set him up, set her up and it was an inside job. My favorite, my favorite person getting caught story is, I don't know if you guys remember this, you might, cause it was kind of an iconic photo when Chris Christie closed the beaches down during like that whole budget dispute. And they were just sitting there and the guy rented the helicopter and, he was just caught on the beach. All oh, the best were the memes afterwards. <laughs> they put him on the bridge for Bridgegate and all this yes. stuff. <laughs> yes. Yeah. People getting caught doing things is funny. It yeah. is. It is. Yeah. On, the, on that note of, of people getting caught doing things, um, one <laughs> thing that you've written about, which I find fascinating, is the growing black market for vape devices, and more importantly, liquids, uh, in jurisdictions that enact different types of bands. Right. So some places have flavor bands and, and, and it ranges. Uh, can you walk some of our listeners through what your findings are in terms of when you're doing some of this research yeah. and talking to people? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I think one point that I think, well, obviously there's, there's this sort of kind of general knowledge, right? Where you're like prohibition causes um, a black market to thrive, right? Which is fine as a sort of blanket, statement but i think particularly with vaping it's interesting because this is kind of how it started right so it was a very sort of underground culture that you know it started online they're all sharing things they're modifying their devices it's a very sort of consumer driven um movement right and then obviously whatever it gets kind of overtaken by big tobacco we can get into that but i think at its roots right this is very diy sort of culture and they're all very passionate and then it kind of got destroyed, for better or worse, by these sort of larger players. That being said, it's not hard for these people just to go back to doing what they were doing seven, eight years ago. Like, it's not, there are so many loopholes. I think part because politicians just fundamentally don't understand this issue because it's, it's very sort of nuanced. It's not, um, it's not something you can just really just, you have to like sit there and like listen to somebody explain things to you, which is, mm -hmm. um, maybe not the easiest thing to do in our current climate. And so, I mean, on that, on that side of, of, of black markets or illicit markets, however we describe them, yeah. what, ex like, what exactly are these people doing? Are they actually making liquids yeah, so, I mean, at their home? Or are they just driving across and basically like buying mango jewel pods en masse in a legal, legal so, jurisdiction yeah, and then, then you could do, you selling could, it? You could do all of those. I mean, like, so I, I can't off the top of my head specifically remember these sorts of um, – there's all these intricacies on the state level, right? So like New York, for example, which has maybe the most like sort of draconian measures. Um, those people are like, I know one, I'm going to misremember this a bit, but you basically can't sell. You could sell 
flavored e-liquid, say, but you can't sell flavored e-liquid with nicotine in it, right? So you could go to the store. So say a store is still selling flavored e-liquid, right? So I go to the vape shop, I buy flavored e-liquid, and then I need to mix it with something. But that's not necessarily easy to do if you have no idea what you're doing. You could pour, I almost cursed again, a bunch of uh, liquid nicotine in, into the e-liquid and then just have a complete sort of, you know, you're, you go crazy. Um, so people, that being said, people are selling, I talked to one guy who's selling just the liquid nicotine and sort of like pre-measured doses, right? So it'd be like, okay, you have the e-liquid, put a droplet or whatever into this and then vape away and have a good time. So, I mean, he, he told me he's basically selling liquid nicotine out of the trunk of his car. Um, and then there are people who are just selling flavored e-liquid with nicotine in it sort of under the table to people who had already previously been buying from them, right? So say, oh, I talked to a woman who owned a vape shop like way in upstate New York. Um, and she is, was in the process of closing her shop down. And then she was just like, you know, I have 50 to 100 customers or whatever who have been buying from me. I trust them. They still want these products. I'm just going to drive around. And then she's like, I'm making way more money because nothing's taxed. Um, I don't have the overhead of the shop anymore. Um, that's the other thing too. A lot of these states put these sort of crazy vape tax were almost equivalent to cigarette taxes, right? Which probably shouldn't be true. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of where everything is now. And then there's, yeah, then there's people in Massachusetts say who will just drive. I mean, you're in Boston, New, New Hampshire's 40 minutes away, right? But you could just drive to the, drive over the border yeah. and buy things. Um, so it's, it's a mix of all of those sorts of things. I don't know much about the pod situation though, because many of these people aren't, um, like pod-based vapors, right? Um, the people going to these lengths are usually using this, those open systems, right? Yeah, the old, the old school users, the people yeah, who are kind of early entrance um, right. to the which space is the, for sure. Which is, the, which is their biggest sort of, I mean, because otherwise the black market exists and they really don't care, right? They're still going to make money. They're still going to have people vape fine. But I, the uh, sort of, no one else is going to be introduced to this safer alternative right because mm -hmm. how are you how am i going to go find essentially a vape dealer when i have it's just a lot of effort right instead of being yeah. able to walk into a vape store or even a convenience store just being like okay i'll try that instead of a cigarette or whatever yeah yeah, yeah and that's what that's that what happens if you go to the cvs now um or walgreens or some of these pharmacies you know they don't have vape products but plenty of cigarettes for you to try yeah i mean it's uh it is a very strange i mean that's the argument for sort of because some of these people have been like, okay, there's concessions in which like we could have vape shop concessions, right? So like vape shops can continue to sell whatever they want to sell, uh, but convenience stores won't be able to sell vape products. But then you have the argument that a lot of these people started vaping by just walking into, you know, a gas station store and seeing a cigalike or whatever and being like, okay, there's no, whatever, there's no cigarettes there. I'm sick of smelling like smoke. I'm going to try that thing. And then, you know, they never smoked again. Um, yeah. Or yeah, they, that's you know, it was, that's one of the popular arguments that, that we've made is basically saying that we're, I mean, smoking is a very habitual thing. People buy their cigarettes at the same spot right. almost all the time for years. And so if you accept the harm reduction arguments, um, which many legislators don't, I think misguidingly, yeah. you have to have that product basically served alongside right. so that they know, oh, okay, well, I can pick something else. Right. I mean, I think the most interesting thing for me now, I mean, just in terms of like the narrative, the story or whatever, not, I'm not making a judgment on any of this, but uh, the idea that now it's being co the whole vape movement is sort of being co-opted by two separate groups, right? You have these sort of 
tobacco harm reduction, tobacco control sort of scholars, professors, these kinds of people, and then big tobacco itself, right? Like I think people are very uncomfortable with the idea that this was driven initially by just vapors, right? So then in the sense that like then these public health professors, for example, have to be like, okay, like this is safer, right? Um, but the arguments are largely being made by vapors themselves who can't quite all the time articulate why um, it is so beneficial. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, uh, and we've experienced that as well. Like we, we did something on Twitter uh, where we just asked like, hey, if you, were, if you were a smoker and you used vaping to quit, like let us know right. how and why. And I mean, you throw a tweet out, you, you really don't know what's gonna happen. And we had <laughs> 30, 40 responses, people from all over the world, they're like, yeah, I smoked a pack a day for 15 years. Yeah. I got a chance to try cookie crumble vape or whatever it was. Right. And I was able to, like, I was a dual user for like a week. And then I haven't had a cigarette in five years. And you're like, oh, right. yeah, okay, that's fantastic. Yeah. Right. And Alex, I, I think mean, you're right. You're right about one thing is that there's a lot about perception. And uh, one thing yeah. that we've dealt with is, you know, we've been talking about vaping for a long time and, and broader harm reduction. And, you know, you have, you have this in the background, but then there's always this idea that uh, big tobacco is going to come in and, and control all the vapes and things. And right. that's why we need all the regulations. Uh, but, you know, many journalists, you know, such as you have covered, actually many of these regulations favor big tobacco because it stops yeah. these smaller producers from getting their products to the market. Yeah. So like, for example, now, I mean, this, this, this sort of dreaded deadline of these pre-market tobacco obligations, right, which is essentially for every product. So like everything with a SKU number has to be registered with the FDA. And there's all sorts of estimates of how much this costs, but say it's millions of dollars, right? So a small business with you know 400 products is not going to be able to afford this application, right? Whereas Altria, which owns a large part of Juul, Philip Morris, whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, they'll be able, enjoy, they'll be able to afford these applications. And in that way, Big Tobacco is going to end up controlling the entire vape market, which I think is kind of what, um, and this is sort this is conjecture, I, but I, I think that's what the other side wants, because it's much easier to point to the sort of boogeyman, the big tobacco boogeyman and say like, okay, they control the vape market instead of it's 50,000 or whatever small business owners <laughs> who are trying to quit smoking cigarettes, right? It's just like, oh, it's Japan tobacco. Like they're trying to, you know. Yeah, like or it's just a couple out. of, uh, you know, technology nerds in Silicon Valley yeah. who, you know, come together and, you know, put this small thing, e-cigarette together. And now it's like huge in the market. That's how it started. I mean, obviously now it's a different game. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to use that to to pivot to another argument and something that you've written about as well. Sure. And that is uh, cannabis legalization. So this yeah. this came up a lot with the, lung injuries that happened last year that everyone said right. was nicotine vapes, but we turned, you know, we found out it was the contraband, um, many cannabis vapes as well. And uh, David and I are, are um, trying to write about what's happening in Pennsylvania, where the governor yeah. there is saying, hey, we're going to legalize tomorrow to provide funds for small businesses because of COVID, right. because of all the um, sort of repression in minority right. communities. Uh, where do you see a lot of this happening? I know in Arizona, I think it's on the ballot for the fall. Yeah, I mean, it was supposed to, I'm, from, I'm from New Jersey. It was supposed to be, I mean, that was like one of Phil Murphy, the governor's like main campaign promises, but it's tied up for all sort of bureaucratic reasons. I mean, the thing that's interesting in terms of the sort of long illness fiasco, which was, I mean, it was, when was that? Was that last year? I mean, it feels like. Yeah, it was all nice. last summer. Um, yeah. 
Time yeah, is just summer. totally skewed now. Yeah, which, which is, which is, I mean, well, funny is the wrong word, but it's kind of funny how quickly that propelled the vaping into the sort of, I mean, everyone forgot about it now. Like, there's no real, like, mainstream interest in the way there was when people were allegedly dying from vaping. But, um, yeah, I mean, when I was writing about it at the time, it seemed as if, which I still think is true, that states that had legalized cannabis already, uh, people weren't dying from vaping uh, because everything was, you know, legalized in the sense that it could be recorded. It was, everyone knew what was in the products. Whereas I think Wisconsin kind of had the, they had those dealers, like there was a huge drug bust where they kind of burst in and found the guy dumping um, the, Vitamin e was, the vitamin acetate, yeah, yeah. into the, <laughs> to the stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that was an easy argument. And I think the governor of Pennsylvania, what's his name? Tom Wolf, right? Uh, I think he was, or the, he's got a, a lieutenant governor who's sort of like a kind of. Well, he's very gung-ho, yeah. But yeah, lieutenant governors hip, don't do anything hip, usually. So yeah, he's they sort can of a hip, vocal, gigantic guy. Yeah, uh, but his, his whole thing, they, they almost got to this point, which was that um, if everyone's dying from vaping um, THC oil, um, yeah, maybe the best way to go about this would be to monitor the THC oil. I mean, that's another problem, too, which we can get into, is that the language in which you say vaping, and it can mean nine different things, right? I mean, yeah. no one, no, no one, like, you have to sit down and explain to somebody that it's like, no one was vaping. Uh, like, no one's vaping tobacco, for example, right? Like, you, have all the, you know what I mean? Like, you just, it's like, it's not tobacco. That's not what it is. It's like, yeah. Um, but I think it involves a lot of, uh, a lot of, just talking you know what i mean um that was kind of a tangent but no no no. i hear you i mean that we, we've encountered that. i mean we've yael and i have met with legislators both in canada and the united states and it, it can be exhausting to explain to be like oh well we want to we want to have uh let's say a 20 percent vape tax right like, okay well that's a bad idea uh, then let me separate this out between nicotine vaping and cannabis vaping. And you kind of see like the eyes light up. They're like, right. wait, what? I said vaping. Yeah. And it's like, yes, there are multiple different substances that can be yeah. vaped. Right. This is how it works. Uh, you're the health legislator. You should know this, but I will educate you. Uh, and just uh, trying to like explain to them like, okay, people can vape cannabis products people can vape nicotine right and lung illnesses largely came from illegal thc vapes that basically as prohibition always does has additives and other uh, right. things added to substances to try and prolong their life which ultimately hurts consumers um so it's a huge it's a huge hurdle and i guess on the journalist side i would ask you like why do you think there's such a gap and i I try not to be like one of those guys who's like, well, the media never covers this yeah. well. But I feel like when it comes to vaping, regardless of both sides, the oh, yeah. media I mean, really doesn't cover it well. I've, I've thought about this, and I, this is going to be a blanket statement. I don't mean this about everybody, but I've thought about like why. I think one thing which I mentioned is that it does require a lot of knowledge. So if somebody's like sort of parachuting it, like I'm very interested in this sort of thing. I mean, in part because I smoked for a while, but I can, I can get into these kinds of things. But I think it involves a sort of, you have to be kind of be in the trenches and like know the people and know what's happening and be able to explain it in a, a very nuanced thing in a very simple way, right? So I think that's one thing. The second thing is too, which I 
I've been sort of toying around with my head and then kind of as all this stuff was happening in newsrooms during COVID and the sort of protests going around the country. I do think there's a sort of class issue to it that in the sense that people who tend to smoke and tend to vape because they smoked um, aren't necessarily from the sort of um, ivory tower. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the, yeah. the, the mothers against vaping, for example, are exactly the mothers who you would think would be against vaping. They're from Westchester. They're white. You know, they the found they, Yeah, they found it. They found a, a vape pen in their kid's closet or whatever. These yeah. aren't, these aren't like, um, and then you have menthol cigarettes running all across the country. Do you know what I mean? Like there's, there's just no logic to it. Um, but I think that's simply all it is, right? It's very, it's, it's very easy to latch onto kids are vaping, which is true and a problem, sure. Um, but there's nine different other things that we should be talking about. And I think like very simple solutions for these sort of massively complex problems are probably not uh, the best yeah. idea. But I, and I don't think, I don't think it's, like, I don't care. Like I'm happy to say this is what I think is true. Uh, but I mean, I can't tell you the number of emails I get from people that are like, uh, you know, you're a big tobacco shill or um, even, I'll say this too. I mean, they're like the Stan Glantz. I don't know if you know who that guy is. Um, but those sorts of people, like they don't even want it, especially when I was at Vice, because Vice had a deal with, I think it was Philip Morris International. No idea what this deal was, some sort of advertising deal in the UK. I don't know who was on. I know nothing about the thing other than the fact that anytime I would reach out to these people, they say, we're not talking to you because Vice took big tobacco money, which is like, say whatever you want about that. But like, I had nothing. I mean, they, they seem to think that I am like being sort of puppeteered by Philip Morris, which is just like so far from the truth. Like the only reason Vice covered anything was because I was pitching articles. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it wasn't, uh, it wasn't. And I know, I know you're, you're holding back a few curse words there probably. So, uh. oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh no, I didn't. I didn't. Did I curse? I don't think I did. No, no, you didn't. Uh, uh, a question on that as well, because, um, you know, one thing that David and I have covered, and we've had a lot of different journalists on from different outlets, and, and you know, you've seen an evolution. And I'm wondering if the kind of consolidation in media or the rise of, I, I don't want to say citizen journalism, that's bad, but more the personality driven journalism, you know, do you think that's shaping how we analyze public policy problems? Because uh, a mean, lot of it I is mean, like personality based, it seems. Yeah, I mean, pro I mean, I, I mean, I can go on a tangent on that too. But I mean, I don't know if that's. I mean, there is there is a fascinating. I mean, with the sort of like, I don't know where I go to work next. You know what I mean? But like, I mean, people are seeming to embrace sort of this independently driven journalism, right? So I mean, like, um, I think a good example is that I, I don't know if you saw this with the ex dead spinners, you know, they, they, they formed a new media company where it's essentially work our own, which mm -hmm. is a great idea. I hope it works. Um, and then uh, like Substacks, and obviously, uh, uh, but I, I do think that you're going to see more and more people get off of places like Twitter, for example, where it's like, I'm not I don't really I think Twitter's kind of a waste of time in a lot of ways, because it, it, it tends to I mean, just, I mean, this is an obvious point that everyone makes, just sort of um, elevate the loudest people in the room in very short sort of snippets. Um, but I think, I think you'll see more and more people sort of um, moving away yeah. from that. And I don't know if that means that it'll just be sort of bundled around, right? Like, I don't, I don't know if that's a good thing either, where there's this massive decentralization that um, you're, there's no curation at all, which I do think is kind mm -hmm. of... <laughs> 
important in a way. I mean, yeah. that's what a magazine is, right? Well, um, if you would like to donate your blue check uh, to either David or myself, <laughs> yes. we're going to take a blue check. Vice got me that too. I mean, they were just like, uh, uh, I don't remember how that happened. They were just like, uh, I'm going to demystify the blue check. Uh, but the social media editor was like, yeah, just send me your email and your name. And I woke up one day and I had a blue check and that was, oh. that was, that was all, that's all there was like to it. Christmas day. I mean, I would have to be way more famous to get a, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't tweet all that much. I don't have that many followers. Like, I mean, enough, but like. Um, yeah, one, one loophole I see is that a lot of people, a lot of Brits I've seen, they, they create a parody account of themselves. Yeah. And yes. then, then there's like, oh, well, obviously I need verification because there's this parody account out there. That's, a, run. that's a fun, that's a, that's a funny one. They it's a nice little you. back door. Yeah. Yeah. Big tobacco, big one for Alex. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's plenty of that there. There's, there's yeah. some good trickery going on. So uh, what, what are some of the other things that you've been uh, writing about or that you would like to draw our audience to? I know you had, um, a, you had, you had a piece where you were slaughtering um, Jim from The Office. What was that about? Oh, yeah, I did slaughter Jim from The Office. Um, so, which I can, I, can, I can tie into another thing, too. Um, so New York Times Magazine has this screen line column, essentially, um, which I write for on occasion, um, which is just... Uh, they, it used to be more viral videos, but it's just sort of like videos or movies or uh, things on your screen that sort of penetrate into the you know, general consciousness, right? So the Jim from The Office, John Krasinski, had this show, I think it was more in the beginning of this pandemic when everyone was like really inside thinking that, you know, you're just going to die from walking down the street. Um, and it was, it was called Some Good News. It was basically just like a I think I described it as an endless D block, but it was just sort of like all these very happy things. You know, it was like, there's like, you know, there's a cancer kid. Uh, uh, here's uh, here old people like kissing through the window, those sorts of images, right? Nonstop for six weeks. Um, and it was, it was sort of uplifting in the beginning in the same way I thought, I think I compared it to like everyone, especially in New York, were clapping for the healthcare workers, which was, um, at first, it, I was like, it bothered me, and I didn't know why, because I, I thought I was just being a grump, which I, I if you can't tell, am. But um, uh, eventually, I was like, oh, it's just because it's an empty gesture. Like, we're not doing anything. So then, anyway, some good news kind of, it ended right as, I think, right as, right before uh, George Floyd was killed. Um, so then, you know, obviously, that changed everything, too. And then the images online were all of protests, and then the media covering these alleged riots. And um, so anyway, the piece was basically saying that uh, this, this good news stuff is a complete waste of time and we should be sort of focusing on everything that's wrong with our clearly broken society. Yeah. Uh, and, and he uh, sold it to Viacom for a million bucks. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that was, that was the other massive thing. Is that he, he, then, he stopped doing it because he sold it to CBS Viacom. Well, I, I mean, even the NBA had that struggle going into the bubble where guys were like, we're openly saying like, I don't know if just putting Black Lives Matter on the court and yeah. having cool slogans on the back of our jersey is is like, are we basically doing the equivalent of greenwashing yeah, I mean, activism I, here? And then yeah. things obviously got serious with the boycott or right. strike or however you want to frame it. It's like, okay, well, now we're... Now we're actually flexing some muscle. Right. Because I think they, they went in large part, from my understanding, to sort of draw attention to that issue. And then it was immediately superseded by, you know, the bubble in Disney. Like, it's funny, right? Like, it's uh, just this goofy thing. And then, yeah, I think their point got sort of lost in the – which I guess was inevitable. I don't really know. Maybe not. Um, but, yeah, very quickly 
went off the rails, I think. Um, I mean, I'm fascinated by that bubble, though. I don't yeah. even care about I don't even care about basketball. The second they sh- they were on strike, I cared about basketball. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the cool thing for me is, like, all the stories of people who, like, break quarantine and leave the bubble. I forget yeah. who it was, but basically, like, he went out to pick up wings from a strip club. Yeah, I remember that. That's, like, the and, one thing I remember. <laughs> yeah. And he got caught. Yeah. And he was like, oh, I, go, I was just going to a restaurant to pick up wings. And they're like, no, buddy. Like, you went yeah. to a strip club to pick up wings. Yeah. And then I, I, I think it was, like, Johnny Menzel or whoever it was. Some, yeah. some other athlete who's known for partying was like, I can vouch for him. They have great wings. That's funny. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, I mean, it's like uh, – Man, listen to a podcast. It must have been the Daily Podcast, the New York Times one, but uh, they interviewed the reporter. I mean, the like, dude's tested, like, every day. They're just, like um, – it seems like a wild, wild world. I mean, he's been there for, like, 40 days. Imagine being in a Disney – I don't want to be Disney for a day. Imagine, like, being in the Magic Kingdom in a bubble for – yeah. Oh, yeah, and they can't do anything at all. And I think the, the NBA even put up the money, and they created this, like, new spit test or something, which is like, oh, yeah. there's a little bit of innovation that's come out of this. Yeah, as Jim yeah. Gaffigan says, the best ride at Disneyland or Disney World is the ride out of there on the monorail. <laughs> I mean, I've been to Disney in a long. I don't, know, I don't know if I've ever been as an adult. I really don't know. No, it's a it's a totally different environment. I do yeah. not look look forward to going there and bringing my daughter, but that'll be fine. So <laughs> one day, uh, yeah, one day we'll see. So Alex, yeah. it's been great to to talk to you and, and chat no here uh, here on the radio show. So we'll definitely point to your website and links and everything else and uh, anything else you want to promote. We'll definitely highlight on our page. All right, cool. Um, thank you so much for having me. All right, thanks, thanks so much, Alex. All right, cool. See you guys. We're all just searching for something bigger than back here on the big talker 1067 fm consumer choice radio consumerchoiceradio.com there you can listen to all of our previous episodes of course and uh, you can subscribe and uh, be sure to follow us as much as we can we've started our own twitter page now uh, so it's at consumer c radio uh, we'll be posting some clips you know little video snippets and audio snippets and the rest from the program uh, so hopefully we can continue to engage all of you and if you haven't given us a ranking over there in any of the uh, podcast stores please do helps us out a lot helps get the program out to, to different voices to different people around the country and uh, we can talk more about consumer choice uh, all day long Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so David, what are you bringing to the table? I think you've, you've stacked more of the, uh, the rundown here uh, mm-hmm. than I have. We, we had, obviously, some great topics covered by Alex, but uh, what, what else you got that's, uh, that's been uh, tickling at your brain here lately? Well, one is the polls, because it looks like Trump is now within reach in pretty much all of the swing states, and people really didn't think that that was going to happen. So um, if you take your, if you look at, this amorally, um, which I try and do and try and re- remove my, my <laughs> Immorally, own morally, you yeah. mean <laughs> <laughs> remove my biases, uh, in terms of how I'm looking at this. It is super interesting to see what's working and what's not. And at least right now, it does look like the, 
the fact that these riots are occurring and this, this violence is occurring in Democrat-controlled cities and Democrat states is helping the president pull forward. Um, couple that with the RNC, and we now have him within reach uh, in, in pretty much every swing state. And the reason why that's important, and I didn't realize this until I actually looked at the numbers, um, if you look at, now I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get the numbers right because I don't have them in front of me, but uh, an example would be uh, Hillary Clinton's lead in Wisconsin at this point in the election last time. She was up like seven points. Joe Biden is up three and a half points. Same thing for Michigan. Same thing for a bunch of these other states. And so a lot of people who discounted um, the president very early on I think uh, are in for maybe a rude awakening just just by how the how the polling is going. I mean, it's still early, uh, but I think that either way, whichever way this breaks, it's going to be a much closer election than most people, uh, particularly on the left, think it will be. Yeah, and I think I'm going to start a series or something on Twitter of of uh, tales from the swing state. Yeah, uh, I mentioned that earlier, but man, just to see the micro targeting that's happening, I, th- I think a lot of people don't realize this, but at least at our house, uh, there's a lot of targeting. So my uh, my parents, where I am staying now, they're out in the suburbs, in the burbs. And here there's a, a specific targeting. You know, everything we've heard about the violence and the looting. And um, there's, I guess the consensus now is that if you want to win the election, you have to win over the, quote, suburban moms. Yep. Um, so the, the targeting that's happening here are these flyers. And I'm sure there's more money being spent digitally. So if people are probably seeing this on Facebook or um, you know, what are the Google News or something like this? But uh, the the flyers are just amazing because they're they're done very very quickly. Uh, this is done usually by the state parties. Uh, they they have most of the money yeah. for this, so either the local, Democratic or Republican yeah. party. So the one that that uh, came in yesterday was uh, Joe Biden is partnering with the radicals to bring a radical left vision to Washington, and it's he's with uh, Elon Omar. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's hanging out with Bernie Sanders and AOC. They're on there and they're yeah. putting up statistics and saying joe wants to defund the police and all this and a very scary looking demonic and it's like man this is this is crazy because this is uh i i imagine they have like 15 templates that they send out to various areas uh based on whatever topic it's just it's cool to see this because um you know as we mentioned before if you're in california or in new york you know you're not really going to see this type no because uh, they already know who you're going to vote for. <laughs> well, but at least people in the middle of, of uh, sort of the political way, there's still going to be people yearning for those votes. Yeah, and I think what a lot of people are going to see, uh, based on the most recent ad announcement, is a lot of Joe Biden condemning the riots. Um, so the Biden campaign, I forget how this was. It was either leaked or confirmed that they are taking his statements about the riots most recently where he says... The violence is not protesting, looting is not protesting, hurting people is not protesting, this is lawlessness, it has to stop. Very strong message. Uh, they're pumping $43 million into an ad spend on just that ad. And to put that into perspective, I'm fairly certain that that's more than Joe Biden spent on advertising for the entire primary. That is insane. So you That's that, crazy. I mean, but is, isn't it crazy to think that because uh, if you watch the convention, it was pandemic heavy, right? So it was uh, Trump and his cronies are doing a terrible job. Everybody's sick. All these deaths are on his hands. And now to think that, you know, the biggest ad buy would be based on like his comments in the last week, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, 
it just shows you how quickly the narrative can change and whether you view this as a very positive thing or a very negative thing, how quickly the Trump campaign can get you on your heels. Because now, now Joe has gone from pretty much campaigning from home um, to now having to make appearances. I mean, he had to go to, he went to Kenosha and that was a, a huge step for him because he wasn't really doing much in terms of public appearances. Uh, and so it looks like the Trump campaign has, has the Biden campaign on their heels in terms of this message. It'll be interesting to see where that plays out uh, or how that plays out. And if out. he's following him around, that doesn't really bode well for him because then Trump always has the upper hand. Yeah. Right? So he's, it's like always him responding rather than leading the message, which I think is uh, political communication 101, yes. as you know, David. Yes, of course. And one thing I, I wanted to, to transition to, so I'm going to take over the deck here. Uh, just because I, I got a, in the email, I got a media request for you to go on the radio this weekend uh, over there in yes. uh, BC to to talk about one of your articles, and I think this this would apply uh, most of it. I think would apply for for basically every place in North America. Mm-hmm. So the the headline in the Financial Post newspaper: first a free lunch, then a freed up lunch. If we're going to nudge people back to restaurants, let's make the food service industry fun again. By David Clement. Tell us about this article, David. (laughs) Yeah, so in the UK, they created a program called Eat Out to Help Out, uh, which basically subsidized uh, up to 10 pounds, um, which for listeners who don't know what that means is currency in the UK. Um, So like $10 worth of, um, uh, of subsidy to go to restaurants on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. And the goal was to nudge people back to being comfortable going to restaurants again. And so... Um, super interesting policy. Um, I didn't know if it was going to work. The initial estimates show that it, that it did work. I mean, I think the, the total figure was, um, in this, maybe around 60, 65 million meals being claimed over one month. Um, and so it had a tremendous impact and that got me thinking about, well, would that work in Canada? And I basically came to the conclusion is that it, that it could work, but we have to make going to restaurants fun again. Um, and what I mean by that is let's get some of the crazy rules in regards to alcohol consumption. Let's add new products to um, what uh, restaurants in Canada are allowed to offer. So an example would be for quite a while now, cannabis beverages and edibles have not been uh, available at restaurants. I argue that if I can buy a beer at a restaurant, I should be able to buy a cannabis beverage. Um, and then some food policy changes in terms of reducing the cost of things like chicken, dairy, poultry, and eggs by getting rid of supply management. So some pretty simple changes. Um, some of them really just make focus on making the hospitality industry or food service industry more consumer focused and more consumer friendly <clears throat> because we can nudge people back, but they're only really going to embrace it long term if what they go back to is actually fun. Uh, and yeah, so- and no one wants to go out and have to wear masks like the entire time, except when your food comes and uh, where it's at twenty percent capacity and and prices are going to be much higher yeah. because they. I mean, these restaurants are struggling, you know, starving basically. So they have to make up that money somewhere if they want to pay their employees. Yep. Uh, but you're definitely right. And I think most of these reforms, you know, save the cannabis, at least in most places, uh, would apply. 
And surely it'd be great to see, you know, reducing taxes on these sort of things, um, allowing these outdoor patios, letting yep. people drink outside. You know, the other day I, I uh, took a walk here in the neighborhood with my with my daughter and I wasn't even thinking about it. And I was walking around with a truly oh, yeah. um, in, in the in the stroller and I was just sipping it going downtown. And I was like, you know what? I could technically be arrested for this right now. Yeah. Um, How insane and By the way, is I that? deny all of this. If the police are listening, I deny all of it. It wasn't me. Yes. I mean, it's insane that that you can't get a beer to go. Um, that I can't be like walking by. Let's say I'm, I'm going to go downtown Toronto. Uh, we're going to hang out in one of the parks or go to Toronto Island or what have you. There's so many great places to hang out. Should I be able to drink a beer? I mean, the overwhelming answer to that question when you ask people is yes. And if the answer to that question is yes, should I be able to buy that beer from a licensed restaurant or bar to go? Of course. And so it's just a logical extension. And for a lot of these restaurants, I mean, some are doing their best to have outdoor patios, but we're talking about restaurants in highly dense metropolitan areas like New York City, where, I mean, there are restaurants that are little holes in the wall. They have delicious food and it's quite an atmosphere, but they just don't have the capacity to actually run enough tables outside. And so by offering some sort of alcohol to go option, um, I think is a way in which you can actually help them stay afloat and you help them stay afloat mm. by giving consumers something that they wanted for a long time. Speaking of food delivery, this program is sponsored by Grub. No, it's not, <laughs> yeah. but, um, if it was, it'd be great. Yeah. Uh, we love you guys. Keep up the great work uh, for those delivery drivers. Um, it really, yeah, you're, I think you're right. It depends on where you're living and how dense uh, the area is, how big your city is. But a lot of these innovations are, are happening whether or not regulators like it. You know, there's so much that's being done on the app basis, you know, people coming up with stuff. One example, um, again, not a sponsor, but we're interested, guys, is Drizzly. Um, so this is a, a, a food or a, sorry, a beverage delivery company that specializes in alcohol, specifically liquor and beer and wine. And they'll go to the store for you, pick it up and uh, deliver it to your doorstep just like that. And this is something that did not exist 10 years ago and in many places is not allowed to exist because of the state stores or the monopolies. And it's, I think it's cool to see what innovation is already here. And I can only imagine if this situation continues, what kind of innovation is going to happen. And maybe it's apps and technology, or maybe it's ways that restaurants and bars are just going to have to find creative loopholes to be able to, to serve their customers, mm. you know, and do so to make them happy and to, to make lunch fun again. And I think the key word there is creative. So let's create an environment where restaurants can be as creative as possible, right? Everybody wins in that scenario. They get to try things and balance risk and reward with different product offerings and sales and discounts and happy hours and all the things that you and I love while also if they get it right, making more money because it becomes more popular. And so, yeah, that's, that was the, the overall synopsis of um, that argument and that article. So hopefully some legislators out there are listening and, uh, can- Oh yeah. And we'll, Dave, we'll put up your, your interview um, that you do on the radio yep. this weekend. I'm already previewing it. I think it'll be awesome, <laughs> but we'll, we'll put that up there and, and definitely a lot of things to come from that. And yeah, these are good ideas and good reforms that we need, you know, whether it's in downtown Wilmington or Charlotte or Toronto or LA, I mean, 
There's a lot of things that we've learned from this. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Uh, he talked more about, you know, the things that we've learned with what we should change with health policy. But, you know, this kind of stuff with, you know, allowing customers to get food safely, quickly, and in a great environment is, is going to be necessary. And I, I'm happy this UK program is working so far. Uh, I know a couple other countries in Europe are giving vouchers, just mm. general vouchers. I know we got one for 50 euros uh, to go to any restaurant we wanted. Uh, alcohol is not included in that, by the way, so you do need to pay for that extra. Uh, but it's cool to see these kind of voucher programs. Uh, they make absolutely no economic sense, you know, from, from like just a normal microeconomic perspective of money coming from the government. But, you know, at this point, I'm not sure we need a pandemic toolbox, right? We got to get creative and, and think about ways that we can get people back to work and jumpstart things, because I think the uncertainty is, is really what kills a lot of this. Well, yeah. And, and this is why it matters so much for restaurants, because when they pulled restaurant owners, about 30% of them can't turn a profit under the current um, circumstances. And I, I'm not one of the people who argues that um, restaurants should be at full pre-COVID capacity. I'm not saying that at all. Um, so what do we do given this realistic uh, consequence of, of what could be considered good health policy in terms of making sure that tables are far apart? Well, we, we make it fun again. Um, and, and what it looks like, and this is especially true for places that get cold in the winter. I mean, we have maybe about 30 days left of maximum 30 days left of outdoor dining here. Once you get into the middle of October, you're really rolling the dice, especially in the, in the evening, it, evenings, it can get pretty cold. Um, and that's why when you ask those restaurant owners, uh, 60% of them say that if this goes on for another 90 days, that they're done forever. Um, and so we have to be creative in what we can do, especially before the winter sets in to help these guys stay afloat. Um, and so I argue, I mean, yes, you could, there are very legitimate arguments against using taxpayer subsidies or, or, or what have you for, for the industry. And I certainly understand those. Um, but in, in terms of my argument in the op-ed, I'm more say, well, if we're going to do that, let's at least, there are two things that the government can usually do to help a particular industry. They can give it money or they can get out of the way. And I'd love to see it get out of the way um, if it's going to consider giving an industry money. Yeah, and there's there's so much more that, that will come of this in different industries that are being impacted and uh, yeah. God, it's just so limiting. Speak you know, I can only imagine being an entrepreneur where you're, you're trying to make sure that you survive the next day and, yeah, pay your employees because um, as much as uh, we, we detest what happens in Washington, D.C. sometimes, um, if, you know, there's some grand promise of a huge bailout or, or another round of stimulus funding, you know, people perk up their ears at that and incentives matter. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean... <clears throat> When, we, when you talk about entrepreneurs and small businesses, I it goes it brings me to the Nancy Pelosi Pelosi story at the hair salon, which is oh, just yes. absolutely wild that she goes to a hair salon, violates all of the rules in terms of wearing a mask and whatnot, and then has the guts in a press conference afterwards to say that it was an inside job and she was set up by the salon owner 
It's like a terrible gaslighting. I mean, as her long, um, newly bleached locks, you know, frail in the wind, um, she's saying she was set up because, uh, you know, oh, well, they told me that the rules were that they could serve me and stuff. But it's, come on, you know the rules. You're, you're, uh, a lot of people say that you're, you're third in line to the presidency. Yeah. You should kind of know what the rules are in your hometown. You are America's third most senior government official. The onus is on you. And look, if it's not on you, it's on your aides. To you pay people to make sure you don't make these mistakes. Nancy Pelosi, you can pay me, and I'll make sure you don't make these mistakes because this is pretty. Stupid. Fire the intern. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fire, fire the intern exactly. Um, so just wild, and I mean, it's another example of rules for thee, but not for me. And I, I mean, we at this point we probably sound like a broken record, but we've talked about this before. If if legislators aren't going to follow the rules. Then you can't you can't get upset when normal people do. Or when, sorry, exactly. when normal people it, don't. It's it's not giving license to, uh, for other people to do it, but it's just showing that the rules that are meant to apply to everyone, if you have just a little bit of power, a little bit of influence. We talked about it last week as well with the VMAs. Uh, then yeah, you can go a bit far, and then it becomes a class thing because if you're you know a struggling uh, hair salon owner. And, uh, you know, you haven't been able to put butts in chairs to cut hair for the last six months. Yeah, it's pretty upsetting when, uh, you know, someone who is uh, supposedly the leader of, of the House of Representatives can just waltz on into your town and uh, book an appointment very easily. Uh, but you have, uh, you know, let your hair go bad for, for the last, last few months. It's not good. And, not a good look. And only in America, only in America, could you defy a government order keep your salon open, get arrested for it, and then declare you're running for Congress. What a country. Yep. Talking about Shelley Luther, uh, who owned that Dallas uh, salon shop. Uh, she was big in the news. I think it's called uh, Nouveau en Mud or something like this. And uh, she was, you know, is top news. She was, uh, she sacrificed herself to keep her salon open to pay her employees and to feed her kids. Uh, was thrown in jail for, I think she was there for like two or three days. And then uh, the governor uh, signed an order to let her out. And now she's become a cause célèbre. Uh, she was on the, I believe the Tucker Carlson show last night or Fox and Friends or I don't know, one of these programs I don't watch. Uh, but she was on there and she's uh, running for the state Senate in Texas, which is pretty cool. Uh, I think you're right, David. Only in America can you go from being a, a kind of uh, overnight hero to uh, running for political office. What a place to be. It's, uh, it's interesting to see. And I think there's going to be a lot of uh, heroes and villains that come out of the uh, the pandemic and presidential election time. It's uh, it's it's going to be a nasty period. I hope uh, many listeners will, will stay attuned to what we're doing at Consumer Choice Radio. Again, we're going to have some, some great interviews coming up in the next couple of weeks. And uh, be sure that uh, you continue listening along if you're subscribed and, and all the best. Yes. Uh, David, you got to... Uh, one last story you want to hit up before we, we hit the exit button here on the radio? I do. I have the best story. The best story. All right. Hit me with your best shot. <sighs> so there are ongoing questions about how in the era of COVID-19, people can safely uh, engage in sexual relations. And Canada's chief medical officer has suggested that people consider wearing masks while engaging in sexual acts acts um oh. which uh when you saw that hit twitter 
the memes. Oh, the memes. <laughs> if there's only was a way to visually or uh, to audibly represent these. Yes, yes like I, I wish I could just like airdrop the memes into all of the phones uh, of people who are listening because it is absolutely hilarious. Uh, I mean, I kind of get what she's saying, but at the same time, like, I, I, how could you ever say that with a straight face? I don't know. I think that applies to many things that have that have been said, and it, it goes again to show, um, which I think we talked about with, uh, again, Dr. Singer uh, a couple weeks ago, that you know, just because someone might be a doctor or hold some large public policy position doesn't mean they're the best at giving advice. And uh, something that might be totally physically sound as, you know, something you write on paper makes absolutely no sense in the real world. I mean, especially there. Come on. I mean, I again, the images pouring into our minds. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty uh, vivid. Yeah, it's uh, it was quite funny. Just to why not stick to bubbles? You know, why do we have to even have the masks? Just have bubbles that somehow you're able to glue together. And oh, I'm sure there's there's some response. You know, maybe the Hasidic Jews have had it right all along. Yes. Using the sheet. <laughs> oh. <laughs> They've been doing it the right way. So, yeah, we'll, we'll continue to serve as your mask here on Consumer Choice Radio. Been a pleasure to speak to you this week. Thanks again to Alex Narcia for stopping by. Uh, checking uh, checking in with us, and uh, we'll uh, see you next week, David. Yep, yep. Until next week, and as always, be sure to like, subscribe, and rate the podcast if you're listening online. If you are listening on the radio, we do appreciate it. There will come a day and a time where Yael and I will, will be able to actually broadcast this live from Wilmington. Um, so well, we will see you all soon, and uh, thanks again for tuning in. Bye-bye.